Hello, all you Game of Loans podcast lovers. Yes, we've got another episode coming in your ears right this very second with me, Sam, and today's guest, Alfred JD. Um, Alfred is uh, one of my favourite people on Instagram, to be quite honest with you, an awesome property investor, very, very knowledgeable. And on this episode, we really dig deep into his property journey and how he has managed to amass a reasonable sized property portfolio in a relatively quick period of time using various different strategies, uh, which we're going to go through today. Hopefully you really enjoy the episode. Um, If you do, do the usual. Take a picture of your screen or take a snapshot, I should say, of your screen as you're listening to the podcast. Share it on your stories on Instagram, tag me, tag Alfred, and we will share it about. Let's just get as many people listening to this awesome episode as possible. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that you get notified of all future episodes. I'm going to stop babbling now. Let's get straight down to it. Here is my interview with the awesome Alfred JD. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Game of Loans podcast. I don't know why I say another every single time, like it's, oh God, another episode. Um, everyone should be excited for another episode. Uh, but today I'm joined by the amazing um, Alfred Jaddy. Thank you so much, Alfred, for jumping on board with me today and having a chat. No, I appreciate having me on. Always, always looking forward to these podcasts. So yeah, let's just go for this episode. Awesome. Um, Alfred, I know that um, you're pretty popular online. I know, um, you know you come up a lot in my feed. I see you're on Clubhouse, you're getting yourself out a bit. But for those people that haven't maybe come across you before, um, give us a little quick overview of who you are and what you do. Yeah, so I'm Alfred Jade. I am based in the West Midlands. Um, I, I, I'm, based, well, I'm based in rugby, but originally from London, um, pretty much came up to Midlands due to my corporate days and has been working as a project manager. Uh, but now I pretty much focus on uh, building a portfolio of HMO properties in the Midlands. So Coventry is where I, I predominantly invest and mainly city centre. Um, and I look to buy properties where I can convert them into like six bedroom plus HMOs. And again, I'm regards to like kind of where I sit in the market, I'm more towards the high end um, finish. Um, I, for me, I want to put something out there where it's spacious, um, people want to live in there, people want to even get excited the minute they walk in. So I want to kind of create that that little perception as well um, to my potential tenants who walk into the door. Um, but that's what I'm mainly focusing on at the moment. Awesome. Awesome. Do you know, um, it's funny you said that because so, I mean, I, I've done this, I did the same as you. I'm a, I'm a North Londoner. Um, uh, as a, in terms of where I was born and bred, but moved up to the West Midlands because um, that's where my wife's from. So, um, and I'm pretty much a stone throw from Coventry now. And um, one thing I've found is obviously being a broker, I get, I've got clients that invest all over the country, based all over the country. Coventry for a long, long period of time was always that HMO hub. It was always everyone who wanted to get into HMO went to Coventry. Um, how are you finding it? Is it is it tough? Is it a tough market at the moment? You get is there a lot of competition, or do you feel like maybe because it now has this perception that it's kind of an oversaturated market, for want of a better phrase, actually the competition's dwindled and you can you, you can find some decent deals now. Um, so I think I'll talk from the perspective, obviously, us being the pandemic and COVID, the current situation as it is. Um, so it is like the, the demand has died on a bit because um, people are uncertain about their jobs, university demand as well from international students and stuff has slowed down a bit. Um, but at the same time, it's a bit weird because I've got properties that are being let to students for like the next academic year. Um, but the last, let's say, last eight to 12, well, yeah, eight, eight months-ish, 
there was a dip in demand. People were like uncertain. People were even like when they were doing viewing saying, oh, can we take the property like on a roll-on basis or can we do like a three month, like a short term, um, as opposed to just the normal standard six months. Um, so it, it has been a tricky market, but I wouldn't say, so there is there is a lot of um, HMOs for sure in Coventry. Um, I feel like with anything in life, there's, there's a lot of everything in, in like in terms of like businesses or whatever you want to call it, this, of the same type. It's about how do you attract people and still win the customer at the end of the day? Because it's still, how, how, do you, how do you get someone to, to buy from you? Because there's loads of other properties out there. So for me, the way I see it is I, I target seat see center location one to kind of give me a diverse opportunity in terms of tenant profiles that can come into my property. I don't just focus on trying to focus on just one, like students only. Um, I'm like pretty much seasoned. So I've got students, I've got, I can do social housing if I wanted to. I can even do service accommodation, um, professionals obviously as well. So there's four tenant profiles I can target. And that's another key reason I don't really look outside the city center um, location. But yeah, in terms of generating actual tenants and getting them in because of the saturation in the market, it's about your agent and how good they are marketing. And to be honest, every agent is, it's a fine line because I feel like your agent is only as good as how, how they market and how to go about looking to get tenants in the, into the properties. Um, because let's get that, to be honest, a lot of them just kind of create ads and just put it out there and whoever attracts to the ad and that's it. Um, I try and push my agents to try and actively go out seeking tenants themselves, making phone calls to people that are actually looking for rooms and you're just being on the forefront of just trying looking for to find tenants rather than just waiting, put ad out and just see who comes in response to the ad. Um, yeah. I, I, I market um, as well as my agents. So I don't just rely on my agents just marketing it for me. I, I kind of put some ads on myself as well and try and seek tenants and then I'll pass them on to the agent and they'll do the closing of getting the tenant signing the paperwork and putting the deposit down. Um, I think there's 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 two things I think anyone listening that's that's sort of wanting to get into HMO, which is massively important, um, that you touched on there, which was number one, who's actually going to be your tenant and keeping that as wide as possible is is potentially quite a good idea so that you can um, you know, no matter what happens, like for example, at the moment, obviously a lot of students, university students aren't actually going to university. Um my uh my wife's cousin has just recently um, gone to Cardiff and I feel bad for her because she's basically not having a freshers year. And I know. Um, I know. I feel, I feel, honestly, I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel like every university student because that is an experience. Yeah. The cold going out, socialising with your friends, bar crawls, pre-drinks. Like your first year, if you didn't experience that, like some people in the 20s, I feel sorry for anybody in the, like the young 20s and they're, they're like, they're not getting to live. They just, yeah, it's like, no, it's like the worst, your, your best years are, are going to waste, to put it simple. Oh, God. Yeah, I, I, mean, I remember, I mean, I didn't do anything in my first year of university, probably by playing a bit of rugby and, <laughs> yeah. and, and drinking with my mates. That's pretty much all I did. But the thing is, by doing that, you learn, you learn so much, I think, uh, outside of just the academic stuff, which is probably why, I mean, I did a very academic subject, I did history. But, even, but re in reality, the demands weren't, weren't that fantastic on me in that first year. There yeah. are a lot of people missing out but um and this is why i think what you said was so great that you produce a product that hopefully will attract um a diversified um type of clientele so you keep your you're keeping your options open as best you possibly can which is which is great um and the other thing you touched upon as well which i'd love to explore a little bit more is, is the use of agents because as somebody myself who doesn't who i you know a lot of my clients um invest in HMOs, but I don't preview, uh, you know, myself, I have always thought, God, it must be an absolute nightmare 
finding tenants because for every property you've, you've got, you know, if you own buy to lets, you've just got to find one tenant for that property. If you've got yeah. an HMO, you might have to find five, six, seven, eight, you know, depending on how big, big the, the, the buy to let is, uh, sorry, the HMO is. Yeah. You know, you've got so many more um, potential um, tenants that you need to find. So did you, what, what, did you, did you start off like when you first started an HMO, did you start off using um, agents or was it kind of, yeah, like yeah. A learning curve? I've, always, I've, I've always used agents uh, just simply because I have this principle around, I want to kind of use my time to kind of focus on building a portfolio. So my main focus area is raising finance and finding new deals. So that's where I kind of spend my time and then everything else, outsource the build teams, outsource the construction company, the tenant find is, is outsourced to the agent, the management of the tenants outsourced to the agents. So I just try and build a good team around me to kind of let, let kind of alleviate that, those those um, those areas from me so I can focus my uh, my efforts into the other areas where I think I'm more profitable and more, um, more, more, more better, better use of my time basically. Yeah, do you know what? Like, and again, this is already just there's so many really great little nuggets of information that hopefully kind of newbies to, to HMO investing or those that are maybe looking to branch into HMO are going to definitely um, uh, benefit from. Um, that, I guess, the idea of um, leverage or leveraging your time wisely. If I, again, I'm pretty privileged. I get to speak to so many investors on a day-to-day -day basis um, and see how different investors, you know, run their businesses, run their lives. And definitely one of the huge differentiators between the great and the good is that the great will have a real firm grasp on how they leverage their time. Um, and they'll focus really heavily on the stuff that they're particularly good at. So you said there, you know, you're you're looking for deals and you're looking for the finance. All the other stuff really is um, either something that maybe you're not all that brilliant at, or you just don't have the time to divert to it. So that's 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 a huge benefit, right? From day to day, that you can just focus in on on the tasks that you you need to focus on. Yeah, literally. Like I just I just feel like those areas. Don't get me wrong. I call, of course I can find my own tenants. I have found tenants and kind of passed it on to the the, the agents, kind of close them. But for me, it's like those, there's still effort required to kind of do those things and take you away from doing other important tasks. So for me, what's important is keeping the, the, the pipeline um, full and from an investment point of view, keeping the pipeline full as well, just to kind of, so that's where I spend most of my time. Anything yeah. I can outsource, I'd love to outsource. I think even, the only thing I don't think I can outsource is the, is the raising investor finance. That even yeah. I could potentially use a sourcing agent or the relations that I currently built with my agents, they can provide me deals and they have in the past been there. So, I don't, I don't necessarily have to kind of actively go to viewings. I'm not one of those guys that do hundreds of viewings. I think starting out, yeah, it's good to immerse yourself in that world of doing viewings, getting familiar with the property, what to look out for. Um, as you get more experience, your time gets very precious and you just want to use, utilize your time better. Now, if I'm going to view and pretty much, it's, it's pretty much a done deal in a sense, I'm, I'm positioning myself on the phone call to the agent or whoever the, whoever the person is I'm speaking to. Um, as someone that's serious, can move forward, got a team in place, you knows exactly what I'm going to do to the property. I know, tell by the way I'm talking that I know what I'm doing. I'll mention a few roads, um, current projects I'm doing as well. So then I kind of position myself, look, this is how much I'm willing to pay. Is the vendor interested or not? Um, if they are, I'd love to view my build team. If they're, if they're not, then that's not for me. Um, but let me know what, what their thoughts are on, on this kind of four-part figure subject to me viewing it. I've had this before, you know, um, one of my clients, you know, this is actually pretty recent. I think this was only about two or three weeks ago. I was chatting to a client of mine and he said um, when he um, approaches an agent 
to um, to put an offer in on the property, he does so in a very particular way that assumes that he's going to get it accepted. Um, and it, I guess what you were saying is pretty similar. Like he said, um, he'll literally he'll he'll like he'll call the agent or he'll send an email to the agent. He'll call the agent and say, "I've just sent you an email um, with my official offer um, on on the property." Um, on on there, I've also sent through um, all my proof of address, proof, uh, proof, proof of funds, um, and all the details that the client's um, solicitor needs in order to start communicating with my client, with my solicitor, to start getting the ball rolling and stuff. And he said that it, it's incredible, actually, how much that kind of puts pressure on the agent to get the offer accepted, because then they're like, shit, this guy is like ready to, to hit the ground running. Um, I want to get paid out on this deal. So it kind of almost gets the agent in your on your side yeah. to try and get the deal done. Literally, he's a wise one, whoever that person is. Because I, I do something similar on the back end of my calls. So I'll be like, look, um, I can send some proof of funds, my idea over. So I, I ask the question, what's your email? So when he, when he says, yeah, I'll have a I say, what's your email? And and I'll, I'll follow up with, on the email, just literally my, my proof of funds, my ID. And like I said, that, that gets them feeling like this guy is ready to move and they don't want to lose this guy. Because they know I'm, I'll make it very clear as well. I'm in the market looking to add more properties to my portfolio. Um, I'm keen on getting this one. Um, so let me know the vendor's thoughts. Um, but I am looking around. So I'll, I'll make them aware that I am looking elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So if they want to keep long, then I potentially gonna, might find something better and proceed with that. So it's, it's literally positioning yourself on that course just to get them to take you serious. Yeah. Do you, are you one of those uh, investors that puts a lot? of offers in or are you a bit more particular because i've got i mean i've got clients that we are speaking to one client the other day that had 250 offers in currently um are you one of those or are you are you kind of nah. <laughs> i don't even know how where, where, what market you're in where there's that much stock available <laughs> readily available for you to put because i'm in coventry and i maybe every given time i've maybe got two or three offers in um i'm very particular with the property i'm looking at as well I've got very like per, like some perimeters and stuff that I look at um, sizes of the property, so they're not they're not come up that fre- that frequently. And my strategy of being able to secure it, so to plan as well, is not something I can kind of go to, go on in any property that pops, pops up in the market. Um, it has to be a, a property that's probably been on the market a while or some sort of motivated seller um, for me to kind of be able to position um, at, at like a, pretty much tell you to wait three months to kind of wait for me to buy it. And you're not going to do that if you only just put it in the market week one. He's going to tell me to go away. So I'm very like, my strategy is very different. Um, price point is different. I don't, I'm not in the low end market. Um, like the last one I bought or one I bought on Friday is 265. Prior to that was 310. Um, so I'm buying, I'm buying a bit higher up in the market where not everybody can compete at that level as well. Um, for like the lower you are in the market, everybody can buy it. The, the person who's owned wants to buy a, a property for their family to live in, a professional who's getting on the ladder, um, an investor who wants to buy as a buy to let. Like literally everybody's in the market for the lower the lower the price of property is so i just start going higher and higher the barrier to entry is a lot higher so there's less people looking at those deals less people have their rent money ready available to execute on that deal um, such a, that's such a good lesson that's such a good lesson that um and it seems obvious i think kazi actually on on the podcast a couple of weeks ago mentioned this to me because obviously he invests in south london and i guess has a, it was a similar sort of mindset the higher you the, the, the lower you go the more people you've got to compete with and more different types of people. Specifically, I find that if you're trying to compete with people that are trying to buy it as their own home, you're not competing with somebody that's thinking as a calculator, thinking figures, you're, you're competing with emotion. Yeah. Um, and those, those types of people, are all, you, they can always find an extra 10, 20, 30 grand from somewhere to find their dream home. 
And if you can move away from having to compete with those sorts of people, that's where you, you're going to sort of see these wins. So I think that's such a that's such a great lesson to learn. And for anyone that is listening, you know, sometimes it's not always the best thing to do to go as far up north as you possibly can and buy 40, 50, yeah, 60,000 pound properties because you've got so much competition, right? Yeah. And the whole the whole thing of whenever anybody says to me that they live in London and they go up north, my first question is, if I literally ask, if you had all the money in the world, would you buy up north? And I'm waiting for them to say the answer, no, because the, the likelihood is that they're going up north because they feel like it's more affordable, they can afford it. I'm like, that's not your problem. Your, your real problem is not having enough capital around you to be able to buy the deal in the location you actually want to buy. So you're looking elsewhere, which isn't actually solving your problem. So the problem you need to fix is how can I get in a network where I can I can raise that level of capital? How can I fund such a deal? That's the problem you're trying to, those are the problems you should be looking to solve rather than saying, I'm going to invest up north and make it work because the, the, the prices are cheap out there. No. Because mm. <laughs> and you just answer the question by saying, yeah, if I had all the money in the world, you you just buy in London. So clearly you don't want to buy up north, you want to buy in London. It's a real problem. Do you know it's funny? I, I think this is a business thing in general. Um, I said to my business partner the other day, um, if we if money was no object right now, mm -hmm. what would we do with our business? You know, would we would we hire somebody else? Would we move to a bigger office? Would we move to a different location? Would we market ourselves in a slightly different way? Um, yeah. And the answer to all of those things, surprisingly, because he's he, I'm the one that's willing to grow all the time. And he's the one that's like, look, that's this, you know, slowly, slowly catchy monkey kind of scenario. Yeah. Um, and he turned around and he's like, yes, to all those questions. Yeah, I think we get a bigger office. Yeah, I think we'd employ more people. Yeah, I think we'd do more in our marketing. I was like, great. OK, so let's just, you know, what, what, let's, let's work backwards. Let's focus on, on the money side now, right? How much money do we need to achieve all of those, all those things we've just said? Yeah. Property is no different. You know, you, you, I, I speak to people all the time and they've got this, um this goal in mind that this i want to achieve x number of properties x amount of uh, of monthly cash flow all this kind of stuff and actually you're i think what you're saying is absolutely spot on if you thought money was no object how would you actually go about achieving that would you go and buy 100 properties in um in durham or would you go and buy you know 30 properties in coventry or yeah. 20 properties in birmingham you know you know what would you actually do and i think that, that to me is is such a good way of thinking about it. If money was no issue, you know, how would you go about building the property business that you want to build? Yeah, I, I try I try and educate people in that sense, just looking look from a different lens, because I feel like a lot of people are doing things because of their current situation. And you don't you don't you don't set out to build something based on your current situation. You're, you're, <laughs> Jeremy, you have to look at the end goal and how do you become that person that achieves the end goal? That's, that's how you, you should be looking at the the problem i guess it comes easy for me because i'm an engineer my background is i studied aerospace engineering so day one like our lecturer that was teaching us was like you guys are the most valuable people, the most valuable people on this planet because you are the ones that are going to fix the biggest problems on this planet and we're taught to kind of fix think and think of a point of view of how do you fix a problem and and there's always a way it might have it might have it hasn't been achieved yet but there is a way if you have the right team resource effort put into it it can be worked out that there is there is a solution it's just can you put it together and make it happen um, yeah. so it's just a mindset switch i love that is there an element of reverse engineering as well like a big goal and then bringing it back to the now what steps would i need to take tomorrow next week next month in order to get myself on the path to achieving that big goal yeah the whole that, that is literally what i do um the whole reinvent literally everything i said it's like how I, I literally work backwards um who do i need to become that's the first question to achieve that goal 
Um, how if, if it's funding, I need who 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 do I need to meet? I, I always say the question is not it's not how is who. It's never it's never the how. The how is forget the how. How is this? <laughs> trust me, is the who. Who I think there's a book called um, Who Not How. Great book. Leveraging team. I'm all about team building, getting the right people around you, building a network. That's how you achieve massive goals and solve big problems. Anybody that's solved any biggest any big problem on this planet, it's always been about the people who who the people who they're around. Um, you can never an individual can't solve a big problem. So stop trying to fix a problem that you for your you're just narrow focus or I need to fix I need to fix no. Who can I help me? Who can help me fix this problem? That's what you need to be thinking about. Who who's that person? That I you know I, I love that so much. And actually, I, I've got to say, I think if I make a comparison to between conversations I have now to even conversations I had two or three years ago. I think people are coming around, um, new, what I say mean by people is new investors, I think are coming around to the fact that you can't do it on your own. You know, you've got to have people that you can trust around you and you can, you know, leverage off of their, both yeah. their experience and um, potentially their money and all that kind of stuff as well. It's such a great lesson to learn. So off the back of that, um, and I did say to you that I wasn't, it wasn't going to be called question and answer, but you just keep, you keep chucking these nuggets at me and it's bringing <laughs> questions into my mind. So, all right, let's put a scenario together. I'm keen to see what you, what you think about this. So yeah. scenario is you don't, um, you don't know um, any of the people that you know now and you don't have any of the knowledge really that, well, you have some of the knowledge, but you don't have like all of the, the portfolio and the money coming in, et cetera. Yeah. You're a newbie investor. How, how would you go about maybe starting to build that team um, with, the, with the knowledge of how to build those teams that you've got now? I'll give one. This is actually... A one one sentence answer. Uh, great, that's what <laughs> I wanted. My mentor gave me this, and it's the best thing he's ever said to me. Find the person that can. So the, the the principle behind this is, if you're starting out, you're looking to step into the space you don't know about. You wanna, what you're trying to find is the person that can. Who's done it before? How have they done it? You're trying to tap into that network. You need to approach that person, be of a, be of a place of value how you can add value to them and obviously exchange. So if the value is exchanging money with them to give them, for them to feed you information, great. If it is helping them out, source something that they, they, they have a problem that they have and you solved it for them, then they will, they will exchange value with you. So just, just go from a place of exchanging value basically. Um, yeah. But for me, this is a very simple answer. Find the person that can and literally feed off that person. Even, it, it can even be from a, so some people say, I, I call, I have, a, I have a virtual mentor and a virtual mentor is Grant Cardone. I, I watch him from a distance. Obviously, he's quite far ahead of me, but I still, his core principles is what I'm trying to um, relate to, trying to attract, because um, I've seen where he's got to, and just those principles alone, if I follow those same principles myself, I can see myself getting to where he is. Mm. Um, so it doesn't have to be someone, again, that you kind of have to have day-to-day -day communication with. It, it just could be someone you're watching from a distance, just studying them. You don't need to study 10 people. You can just pick one, two, two max. I mean, two can be contradicting, depending on who... They've got they've got to complement each other if you're going to look at two. But for me personally, one person is all you need to listen to. The person you resonate with the most, follow that person, study the person, learn everything about that person, and the likelihood is you'll probably become that person. Um, so I guess it's a it's that whole um, follow the road most trodden or whatever the hell whatever the phrase yeah. is. Because yeah. um, this is and again this is something that I see so many so many times. Um, and I think I did a post about this recently on Instagram, which was basically all about like. If you're a new investor, like by, by you coming up with this incredible idea, chances are that 
a lot of other investors that are a million miles down the road from you have probably already thought about this. And for some reason, they haven't done it. So yeah. you might be the one in a million that has had this incredible idea, but chances are you haven't come up with a magic solution to a problem that's been existing for a long, long time. If you actually look at the people that are doing what you do or doing what you want to be doing in 10 years time, look at what they are doing and follow that route. You know, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. You know, Literally. you don't you don't need to start an Apple or a Microsoft. You there is enough business in this country. There's enough property in this country for all the people that probably want to get into property to have a bit of a successful career in it. Just follow the people that have already been doing it. Um, my big one is bridging finance. You know, I get a lot of my clients scared of using bridging. I'm like, well, my best clients, my clients that own 100, 200, 300 properties that work on multi-million pound development projects, they use bridging or a form of it. So yeah. just, you know, you as newbie investor with 50 grand in your back pocket, why do you think you shouldn't be using that type of finance? You know, it's, they're using it. You should be using it too. You know, it's, it's, it's as simple as that. But that goes for so many other things as well, like, like you mentioned. Yeah, like you said, I think the spot on, like, don't reinvent the wheel. You don't need to just copy. What, I'm, I'm a best. I'm the best copycat I think there is out there. I want to find what works and I'm copying it up to, to the T. I don't need to change any or try and add my little thing to it. No, this works. This is proven. It's done. I want the same success. I'm going to do exactly the same thing. I'm not changing a single thing. And that's where people get it wrong. They, they see something, they want to tweak it a little bit. And that's where it just starts to fall apart. Just follow the process. It's, like, it's, it's an efficiency thing, isn't it? I think at the end yeah. of the day, um, I might have said this, uh, told this story before on the podcast. For anyone listening, if I had, have already, I apologise. Um, when I was doing my A levels at school, which was like back yeah. in the Victorian times, um, my there was a girl in my uh, my geography class, and I think we had like three or four geography classes a week, and she'd turn up to like two. Like she yeah. she she would like miss half the classes. Um, whenever we did like spot tests or anything, she got an A every single time and I remember saying to my to my uh, teacher like how the hell does this woman keep getting a bloody A on everything where well, I'm sweating my ass off trying to learn everything there is and she said she it's all about the efficiency of meeting the end goal for her getting a geography GCS getting a geography A level is not going to mean anything to her she wants to go to to, to university to study dentistry so okay. she knows that she needs four A levels she needs four A's at A level to go to the university that she wants to go to so yeah. she's just, all she's focusing in is, is getting an A. She doesn't need to learn geography. She just needs to get an A in the exam. So she's efficient in what she learns. She learns what she needs to do the exam. She studies the exams. She studies the type of questions. And she knows the subject matter inside out um, enough to answer those questions. And that's yeah. such a great lesson in life. That If you want to achieve something, look at the likes of a Grant Cardone or someone else in, in the field where you want to achieve. And look at what they have done and just and just follow that roadmap and don't deviate too much from it because you need to just be efficient in trying to, to get to that goal. If anything, getting getting um, distracted by other things, you know, the whole shiny penny syndrome, whatever you want to call it, it's just going to derail you from achieving, getting to the point that you want to get to in the quickest point, you know, point of time possible. And um, that was such a great lesson that I learned quite early on in my life. I don't think I truly understand, understood the magnitude of it until probably relatively recently. But, you know, it's a lesson that I learned a long, long time ago. Yeah, no, mate, spot on there. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer. Just find, find who's done it and just re replicate. Don't, don't, uh, don't reinvent the wall, man. Honestly, it's, it's, it's a simple thing to say, but 
It's like, cause it's, I think this day and age, I think what's making it hard for people in this day and age is because there's so much information out there now. Mm. So much, everybody's got a little twist to their information and you, there's so many voices, there's so many opinions. Instagram, social media and all that stuff has kind of brought opinions from everybody. So everybody's got their own angle. Um, but like I said, just one person. I call it uh, I call it net, uh, Netflix syndrome. It's um, <laughs> you go you go on Netflix when you want to watch a film, but there's so many bloody films on Netflix that you end up not finding anything that you want to watch. Yeah. Whereas um, you know if you if you had the choice of three films to watch, you'd pick one, wouldn't you? You pick just you'd go right. I'm just gonna we're just gonna go for this one. Whereas when you've got like 500, sometimes you just you get what you actually want just gets lost. And I think you're right. You go into places. Look, I'm a I'm a massive believer that. The information that is available out there is is incredible and it sets our generation apart from from our predecessors um in in our ability to be able to make successes of ourselves however you've got to be you know tuned in in your mind to being like right i'm gonna find i'm gonna create my own roadmap by looking at only a specific amount of stuff um i'm not going to procrastinate i'm not just you know there, there comes a point where you've got to stop the research and start the actual doing and uh, and again to use like a, an analogy for myself I always think of it when I was a kid, when I was at university, I used to spend so long researching my essays and then I wouldn't give myself enough time to actually put together the right, the writing element. And you don't get marks for research. You get marks for writing down your research in a plausible way. And, you know, I, I look back and I'm not, but I'm not blaming you on I could have easily got a first at university, not, I'm not joking at all easily, but I didn't, yeah. I got a two one. And now it was mainly due to the fact that the quality of the essays that I put together did not represent level of the research that I did because I always left it too late um, and I think that's that's a lot of people that are in our sphere that, that will want to be successful they spend far too much time on the research element thinking that they're moving themselves forward when it actually gets to a point where more research is not going to solve your problems you've got to do you've got to go out you've got to speak to agents you've got to put offers in on properties you've got to find uh, people investors you've got to raise bridging finance or whatever you need to do and actually get some deals done because that's where your next level learning comes from actually doing it and learning from the experience literally and i'll even take it back to my hmos when i, when I, I started first with hmos i didn't try anything else again for me it was like back to what we said earlier on i understood exactly what i wanted to get out of property which for me was high cash flow and, and i wanted to own assets um hmos what stood out for me i then reverse engineered how can i get into hmos with no experience never this is my first investment property um, so all these questions and then literally just kind of resolve each, each, each hurdle. And I didn't, I just, I just needed to know enough to get me into the deal, to get me to start doing the refurb and then build on, cause you know, you're never going to know all of it. I don't care how, I don't know if some people just went out there trying to find every little information. Oh, what about building control? What about when I, when do I order this? When do I like that stuff is going to, it's going to just take one step at a time. Just, 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 just start. And then the question, like literally you answer questions as you go along with it. And then important bit of being able to answer your questions is having that network to tap into. If you, if you come across a hurdle, can you tap into someone who says who's been there and done that and can just give you an answer? And, and yeah. that's what you kind of build. That's um, that that that's a that's a that's a great little bit of insight. Is yeah, ha have have people around you that you can actually contact and and ask genuine questions of. And that might be you know part people that are part of your power team. You know your solicitor, your accountant, your broker. In my in my um, uh, in my example local investors you know, who've done this type of deals before who you can tap into exactly yeah just that kind of stuff i'm interested though you've you've, you've raised something there which is um you know you went in your first deal as an hmo i i reckon if, if somebody said to me sam 
what is the question or what is the, the type of inquiry you get more than any other? And it is first time investors wanting to get into HMO for the first time and they're talking to me about mortgages and how to do it. And you, you know, you'll know this. Most lenders need some kind of experience before they're going to lend to you. Talk, talk me through this first deal of yours. You, know, you, you made the decision you're going to get into HMO. How did you go about, about actually doing it? um in you know practically and raising the finance for it because i imagine it wasn't wasn't the easiest thing in the world yeah so there, there'll be problems so exactly so problem number one is well what do you know about hmo what's your experience okay cool that's that's not fine so I just, I just point to my team see that guy over there that construction company over there they've done hundreds of hmos in coventry the, the well-established company so i'm just pointing fingers um at people um and and saying this is my team this is my network um, to kind of get over the, the hurdles I have. So yeah, experience is one of them. So I just pointed to the build team, which for me, I've always used a construction company and always will. Because um, as I get bigger and do bigger deals, I'm, I'm still I'm still getting asked today, like what's your experience level? And I'm still kind of showing what I've done previously as well with the additional bit of the build team I've done niche projects and therefore we're good to go. Then the lenders are happy with that. Um, in my case, I owned a house, so it, it wasn't it wasn't uh, that helped as well. I think not owning the house limits you to, to people that you can work with. Um, so there was that that hurdle as well. But for me, I was, I was fine with that. Um, trying to think, what else was the were the hurdles? So even the whole entire like specs of HMOs, um, understanding the amenities, the room sizes. Again, I didn't I didn't have it all figured out but I, again I had the architect who's done several HMOs and so he just I tapped into him and said I'm trying to get into HMOs I've got a property here I think I can I can squeeze I think initially we even said five and then we squeezed it we made six we went into lost space so we did a lot conversion and a rare extension um so again this this is my team I'm like what can we do with this property what's the opportunity here and they, they they so I didn't have it all figured out so my this is quite a weird one so I kind of committed based on a certain number of doing a five bedroom HMO and as the deal went along, it just evolved because I was, I was networking, I was speaking to people, like I was showing people what I'm trying to do with this property and getting ideas. How can I do things differently um, to add as much value as possible? And literally I tapped into my architect and he rejigged the rooms around, created the stairs in between the two rooms into the last space, got an extra room in there, which is a dual occupant room. And even that, the dual occupancy room, that wasn't part of the plan. We, we started the refurb and I was like, okay, let's go into planning, let's get it. Um, seven occupant property, um, allow it to be classed as too generous um, to be able to get commercial lending as well. So the, I didn't have it all fixed. Like, literally, I was just, I was navigating my way through this deal. <laughs> and so, so don't be fearful of wanting to know every single little detail before you start the deal. It, obviously, it's great if you can. Like now, things are different. I'm getting a bridge, uh, a development finance where I'm getting a bridge, part bridge on the, on the purchase, four refurb. We're getting evaluating day one to value the property where it's worth today what the refurb is going to cost, quantify that as well. And then on the back end, what's going to be worth commercially or even bricks and mortar as well. So we have both figures. And then that's kind of, for me, this is why I love bridge um, development finance. I think it's the most like risk, um, the most calculated risk we could ever get involved in because everything is being double checked. The, the Even the, the valuation figure, yeah, <laughs> the team, these questions have been asked to the broker, who's, who's Alfred's team, the, the surveyor is asking the same question, the asset manager who comes on site is asking the same question. So it's like, everything's getting triple checked. So it's like, if the numbers are set up from day one, you can't really go wrong. Like the insurance is in place for, <laughs> for the building and, and the work you're about to do. Like the, the, the building you've got has got their own insurance as well. So what can really go wrong? Like, and if you're using the same value at the beginning and the same value at the end, 
the likelihood, or not the likelihood, they're marking their homework. They can't really come back and change the number two drastically because is there, well, what will happen? What's, what's changed? Obviously, it could be uh, something that, that's happened in the market. That might be the only justifiable thing. But in most cases, you're protected with the same guy, same opinion coming back to revalue. So it's, it's all been mapped out now. I've figured it out and I've just, now it's like cookie cutter for me on each deal. <laughs> but yeah, that's how I'm, I'm, I'm navigating the things now. Um, I'm, I mean, this is obviously music to my ears because this is the kind of stuff that I talk to my clients about. I'm, I'm, I'm probably one of the biggest development finance um, lovers in the whole country. You know? yeah. I just, it's such an undervalued type of, of finance, mainly because exactly what you said. Number one, I actually think it's as cheap as it's been for a long, long time as well, if you find the right lenders. But you're absolutely right. Um, clients always say to me, right, okay, yeah, we're going to get this project. We're going to get this funding. But when is it guaranteed? Like, I'm, firstly, I'm like, it's not guaranteed to the either in that, let's be honest. But yeah. the, the, the biggest, biggest, biggest part of the whole transaction, I'm going to get the underwriter to agree to it because that's what I do. You know, that, yeah. that's, that's, what, yeah, that's what someone's paying me to do is to get the underwriter to agree to it. So yeah. that, that's, I'm not worried about that. The, the key thing to the transaction is the valuation. So that's why I, I always say to my clients, right, let's get everything ready. As, you know, when we submit an application, the idea is that we get the, the valuation instructed within 24 hours because we need, they're like, oh yeah, but then we've got to pay for it. I'm like, yeah, you're going to have to pay for it anyway. Just, you need yeah. to get it done so that you know what figures we're working with. And yeah, yeah, so you know to go or no go. Exactly. And you might have to take a hit that you might not go through with it. I had a client I'd recently- I'd rather take the hit now than find out I'm glad to get 100, 100K down valued in, in, six, in four months when I'm done the refurb. So exactly, yeah, it's, an, it's an expense to get a calculated risk to say, okay, I'm moving forward with this based on the information provided. I couldn't agree more. Do you know, I, I reckon if I'm going to pluck some figures out of, out, of, um, out of my head here, I reckon one in every five development finance deals that I work on with my client, either the client's initial, um, either the client pulls out because they get the valuation and they get the information, they decide actually, I don't mean this is as good a deal as it was yeah. previously, um, which is, you know, it's, it's shit for us as brokers because obviously we do a lot of work to get to that stage and, and don't necessarily get paid for it. But, um, but also, even some of those that they will still go ahead, um, but they've got to rejig things. They've got to make changes to their plans. You know, for example, like what you said, oh, maybe, maybe actually... It's an HMO. We're going to go for for Sue Generous on this. Actually, do we need to maybe look at going into the loft and creating another room here to, to make it worthwhile to make to make it work from a commercial yield based valuation perspective because we've got the increased income. Um, so even if it doesn't, sometimes it won't kill the deal off, but it will certainly reinvigorate the grey matter to to think right. Okay, how am I going to overcome this challenge? You know that you you were talking about this earlier on. How am I going to actually turn this problem and find a solution to this problem? Um, and that's what the valuation's for. Oh, I'm I'm so happy that you said you just said what you said. <laughs> made, made my day. Openly just come out and said I love bridging and just development finance. It, for me, it just it just kills me. It, I, I I get the most sense of security doing that. Um, like I, you can't say that about getting like a, a mortgage or whatever and just trying to win on doing a mortgage and and because just you're just waiting to kind of hear someone's opinion at the, at the back end. Like for me, that's huge. That's huge, huge risk. I'm not about to spend 100k into, onto a refurb, and then someone comes and says, tells me we just spent 100k. Thank you, but we don't think it's worth what you just spent on it. So that's that. This is our figure, and you're stuck with it. Keeping keeping to the the little um, uh, to like the, the talking about figures and, and stuff like that. 
I again going back to like my, my clientele, I, I it's pretty split. I reckon I reckon about 50-50 in terms of my clients who will buy with cash and refinance to those that might use original development finance. Yeah. Uh, if, uh, to buy and then and then refinance off the back end. Um I reckon one in three of my clients that buy cash and refinance get a down valuation. Interesting. Uh, and, I, and I say and I say down valuation, I'm using inverted commas because it's not a down valuation. They just haven't figured out what the true valuation is, is likely yeah. to be. Um, yeah. And yeah, look, the, the, the market's always moving and stuff. And certainly over the last 12 months or so, we've obviously had quite a buoyant market and I've been doing yeah. this for long enough. I've seen, seen a few cycles and stuff, but um, you know, it, it is hard to predict the future sometimes, but you can make some pretty reasonable assumptions. And a lot of the time, I just think that when people are buying cash, um, a lot of the time they're so eager to get the deal done that they forget to do their end, end sort of value due diligence to the same level that they're doing their entry due diligence. Everyone spends so much time at the beginning of a deal and they don't think about the exit. Um, I'm like, wait, wait, sorry, I have to stop you there. You can't, to anybody listening, you can't even have a deal if you don't know what the end goal is. Because if you don't know how you've been buying right, if you don't know the end valuation of what, yeah, how, how do you even bought right? So for every deal you go buy right, that's, that's the important key. And the way you buy right is by knowing how much value you can add it at the Oh, what you're gonna add, how you're gonna add value to this property for it to be for it to stack basically. So then you know you bought right. So it's like you can't cash great, obviously gets you in the deal quicker, gets you the deal. Yeah. But for me, that's a huge risk because I don't know, unless I'm paying the valuation report, but for me, you know, it's different. You might pay a valuation report then, but if you're the same affair, it's not gonna come and use it based on the lender going to use because they have a panel that they use um which per area if it's not that same person from the same panel then the, the, that's a different opinion and that's why i try and avoid the whole um using two different um surveyors at the beginning of the end i want it to be the same person so i again reinvest range range um reverse engineering i want to find out who my exit lender is who's on the panel for that postcode and i'm going to use that same surveyor on the bridge end to be able to bridge and make sure he's the same guy's gonna come on the back end when I go to refinance. So he, I'm trying to wow him when he, come, when he comes back to hopefully even get a higher number than what he's already put in because he's got a perception of what he thinks I'm about to do to property. But when he walks on site and the property's all staged and it's all looking nice, he's thinking, oh, we've done an amazing job. I, like, I really like what we've done here. Rents are here, ASCs are here as well. Achieving the rents that you say you're gonna achieve. Don't see what's wrong here. This is a great investment. Let's, let's give you your numbers. You yeah. can't really argue that at that point. Do you know what I mean? It's there in your face. Like what, what, what's there to argue about? I love that. It's, and do you know what? I, I, yeah, I mean, look, you're, you're preaching to the converted, but hopefully there's people here um, listening that, that are really sort of getting this. You, for me, you've got to start with the end in mind, um, whether that's with your long-term long goals or whether it's with your like an individual project. Um, you know, for us as brokers, when we're looking at this, in my personal opinion, and I don't want to jump on, a, on my soapbox too much, but um, there are there are unfortunately I think a lot of brokers out there that are so keen just to try and get a bridge done because they're going to make some cash on it that they they don't think about the exit they don't think about how that client's going to get out of that bridge or out of that development finance and for us it starts with with that refinance first right you know what is your situation like using using you you as the example um, having starting out and not having the experience of HMO us as bro as brokers we've got to think how the hell are we going to get you a mortgage. Yeah, um, or are we going to have to go to some really, really sort of scraping the barrel specialist lenders on the first couple of deals whilst you don't have the experience just to just to be able to exit you off to the, the more expensive uh, bridging finance? And um, 
you know, that, that's what we do to start with. And trust me, there's been two or three times in the last six to nine months where we've actually turned some clients away because we could not give them, um, we, you know, we, could, we didn't feel confident that they actually had a decent exit. And the last thing we want is clients stuck on bridges because it makes us look bad from to the lender's point of view. And I'm not being funny, but um, you know, maybe a lot, maybe people would say, you know, I just need to grow a pair. But I don't like that kind of thing sitting on my conscience that we haven't been able to supply them with a, with a good enough exit. And, but that's down to the, to the investors to, to take that on board themselves. You know, if you've got a broker telling you that the exit is difficult um, and you can't find one yourself, you've got to think to yourself, is this deal possible? It might be for someone else, but is it for me personally? And that's the thing is a lot of, you talked about Instagram earlier and, and people going on there and, and, and seeing loads of different information. They see people such as yourself. They might see people like, like other people that I've had on the podcast that are, you know, quite far down the line in terms of their property journey, for want of a better phrase. But yeah. um, they're not in that position yet. They can only deal the deals that are, that, are, that are right for them right now. And that that unfortunate reality, I think, hits a lot of people that they they could, not all types of finance, as an example, is going to be available for for them right at the beginning of their journey. They've got to work for it. They've got to earn their stripes. Yeah, no, 100% is true. It's, it's difficult at the beginning, but it's it just, just with anything great, you have to go through, through inconveniences. Um, you might not be the things that you want, but you just, you just got to go with it and, and just look to still build on it. And, and, and that's just that's just life. <laughs> yeah. I can't, I can't say any more than that. It's just life. That's what life brings at us. So we just got to handle it. Um, yeah. Completely agree. Completely agree. Um, well, look, um, Alfred, I'm, I'm genuinely over the moon that I finally got to, to get you onto the podcast because I'm a big fan of yours for, for, for a long, long time. Um, and I know, you know, we probably just scratched the surface in terms of the knowledge that you've got of this part of the market. Um, but look, for, for those um, people listening in that are thinking, I might need to, to know a little bit more about this guy, uh, might even need to reach out. I know you've got a mastermind program that you have as well. Um, you able to tell us a little bit more about that and how people can maybe jump onto that and learn a little bit more from you? Yeah, so I mean, I'm running a mastermind. I think this all started um, when COVID, the whole COVID situation happened, kind of create online uh, network, basically, whereby we've got property investors who invest in all over the country. Uh, idea of the group is to kind of leverage each other's experiences and each other's journeys. So people will come with their hurdles and we'll try and share two or three viewpoints on how people overcome that hurdle or, or ways in which people can tackle the problem. I feel like that the, the power of having people around you who you can kind of bounce ideas off um, or even when things aren't going your way, just kind of reigniting ideas or motivating you to kind of keep, keep you going. Because the property game is, it can get lonely. Uh, I feel like you need the resilience, discipline to, to persevere through the hard times. Um, so having that network around you is great. Um, obviously, we, we, we have it once a week, every Tuesday at 8pm. Um, we also have a guest come on every month um, who kind of, again, to kind of share their, their journey to kind of inspire the group to do more. Um, and each session is recorded. We upload it to the Facebook group and then there's a WhatsApp group as well, where people kind of um, network during the week as well for any questions they might have rather than waiting for each session to happen. Um, so that's kind of the bit of the mastermind. Um, you can check it out. It's uh, www.realpropertyventures.co.uk. Um, it's on my it's on my Instagram. So I think connection wise, I'm mostly on Instagram. Um, I am on other platforms: Facebook, Clubhouse, LinkedIn. Um, every, I'm pretty much everywhere apart from um, TikTok. I think, yeah, TikTok. I'm, I'm being tempted, but I think I'm going to stay off there for a while. But I do have a YouTube channel as well to kind of showcase my projects. I, I put some educational content out there. 
Um, but mainly just kind of show my journey, how I'm doing my deals, how I'm going about purchasing properties, uh, just kind of showing that and just showing that it is possible, it is real, um, it can be done. You just got to have that determination to be able to do it. Um, Absolutely. Now, we'll, um, we'll make sure, I definitely will make sure that all of the links you just mentioned are in the show notes. So if anyone's interested in joining the mastermind or find out a little bit more about it, um, they can definitely find out more information by uh, by clicking on those links. Um, but Alfred, I can't I can't let you go without asking you the most important question. Um, Sod all this property malarkey. Let's get, down, <laughs> let's get down to the important stuff. Um, I know you mentioned off air that you are a big chocolate fan, so I'm I'm interested to see what your what your your view is on this. What's 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 the number one chocolate in Alfred's life? Maltesers. I don't know. I don't, it's, it's always yeah. I don't know. Maltesers. I, I could eat a whole bucket of Maltesers. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I don't, have you seen those big buckets? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Start, um, the big bucket ones, oh man, I'll open that thing, just chucking that, just, yeah, I don't know what it is about that. It's a combination of the, yeah, the biscuit and the chocolate around it um, just makes so much, so much sense. The, I find with Maltesers, they're like, it's a little bit like, because that's a, my, my favourite type of, of chocolate to consume is, I love like buttons, so yeah. No matter what type of buttons are exactly. addictive as well, the white chocolate ones, Milky Way. You literally, but the thing is, is, is you're like, you'll grab like a few and then, and then you're like, oh, there's only like five left. I might as well just eat those. Like you, there's, there's, it's a little bit like eating, you know, they, they, um, eating crisps. Like, um, you, you just, you just, you, there's always one more, one more, one yeah, more. One more, one more yeah. Malte- Maltesers are like the epitome of that. You can't just you can't you couldn't have half a box of Maltesers. Ah, oh, mate, that's it. Impo- that's impossible. Like, why can't you just let it go? Like you've had enough now. Put it to the side. Like no, I need to. I just I still need to eat. The taste hasn't gone yet. I just I need to keep going. <laughs> Literally until it's empty. Like oh man, I can never open a pack of Maltesers and not finish the whole thing. It's I can. It's just hard. I can't put it down. Do you know? I, this is. I'm not even joking. I think it wasn't even that long ago. It's like six months ago. I was watching. Um, have you seen the program The Cube? Um, the Cube. Uh, Philip Schofield is, does it. It's like um, it's like a game show where you've got to go into this cube and you've got to do a task. And somebody okay. said to me that probably something that would no, nobody would ever pass it is to go in and there'd be like a box of Maltesers in the middle of the floor. And your task is you're only allowed to eat like one Malteser <laughs> <laughs> because no one would everyone would fail it. You'd eat, you'd eat one. Any like, oh. Malteser lover? I, I know I couldn't one. I also never have it. <laughs> but I, one, I got but you have to eat it. You have to eat the one, but then you're not allowed to eat any others. I reckon yeah. like 99% of people that went to do that task would fail it. Yeah. There's no no doubt in my mind. Oh, Maltesers. Joe, I have recently. Um, Maltesers do buttons as well, but their buttons have like little bits of biscuit in them. Biscuits in them, yeah. The ones I had the other day were the mint, mint Malteser buttons. My oh. God. I haven't seen those. I can't lie. Mint, mint, mint. I hate any sort of mint. Um, okay, fair enough. Don't try those, but try the try the buttons. They cool. are. I, I've seen them. I haven't tried them, but yeah, I, I'm sure they'll be good as well. I'm pretty sure. Oh. I love buttons as well. Again, this is it. It's like you get a bag of buttons, and they're massive. They're like they're like double the size of a packet of crisps. But you can't just stop. You can't eat like a few. You've got to eat the whole bag. Oh, <laughs> this is why it's safe. It's the, the, the safe thing to do is to buy the smallest bag you possibly can or like a little like yeah, small, so ch- bag, small chocolate bag because you can't just eat like half a chocolate bar either it's just, it's just not not possible yeah man sorry i i i should i should learn by now i, I ask this question every single podcast 
and all it makes me want is to just go and eat loads of chocolate at the end so if i'm if i do like two or three recordings in a week that's a lot of chocolate that i then go off and scoff afterwards because it yeah. happens it will happen now i'm going to get off i know that i've probably got some work i need to do but the first thing i'm going to do is hunt down some chocolate in my house i have my times where i'll just go in i'll just be on, on the chocolate mood and i'll just be eating chocolates and then i was like oh, okay i've had enough time cut it out let's yeah. tap out for two weeks and I'll, I'll <laughs> yeah I, that, i'm the same right? i'll have like, this weekend just gone i've had a bit of a bad weekend like i've eaten some some food that i shouldn't have and i've eaten a lot of yeah. chocolate now i'm like right i need i need a two-week detox yeah, it exactly. comes to something when you eat so badly for just two days that you need two weeks to detox that out of your system Literally. yeah that's definitely gonna happen definitely gonna have a two weeks detox detox now but um that's cool that's that no, do you know what we're up to episode 77 or something, I think now, or 78. My God, I've, I've never had anyone say Maltesers. I'm quite surprised by that. Really? Yeah. So what's, what's your favourite then? Just buttons? Or... Oh, it literally changes every day. Literally changes every day. My my favourite thing at the moment is um, Dairy Milk have brought out, and I, I know whenever I say this to people, I get the same reaction because it sounds dreadful, but trust me, it's amazing. It's, um, it's a, a Dairy Milk bar with yeah. little bits of blueberry and little bits of white chocolate biscuit in them. That's an interesting combination. It's so it's so good. It's so yeah. good. But you can't get them in small bars. You can only get them in the big bars. In the big ones. So you know what happens? I'll just like drive to the, the shops because the wife's gone, oh, we're out of eggs or whatever. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go. And then I see it. And then by the oh. time I'm home, it's gone. That's 500 grams of chocolate. Just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no. That's it. Try it. Try it. Honestly, it's a game. It's a game changer. It's just so good. It doesn't sound very good, but it is good. You yeah, know, it's an interesting combo. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I can tell. Really, I can tell. I haven't sold you on it yet. No, because I've tried a few. Like uh, there was, there was one that he stopped making. I don't even know what the combination. It's like it was some sort of like crushed nut and caramel. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It was, it was dairy milk, but I, I, I don't. It was. It was like it was like a. Um, it wasn't a whole nut, but it was like yeah. it was like that. But it was the crushed, like small bit. Yeah, oh, I remember that one. Oh, I don't. I don't like the whole nut one. I always take the whole nut bit out. But there was the one with the crushed nut caramel infused in it. I was like, oh my god! <laughs> Do you know what I had? Do you know what I had recently that I forgot how much I like them. This is this is an underrated chocolate bar, a star oh. bar. Have you ever had a star bar? No, bar, no. What's a star bar? It's like so. It's like um, it's a, just a, a normal bar of chocolate, but it's a little bit like um, it looks when you take the package off. It looks a little bit like somewhere between like a boost and a lion bar. Okay. Um, but then the middle of it, it's like chocolate around the outside. But the middle of it is just biscuit, a shit shitload of caramel, and like loads of peanuts. That's like, so, yeah, so good. Could be good as well. Yeah, yeah. I can underrated, imagine. underrated chocolate bar. <laughs> man I, I i need to go just because i need to obviously i need to go to the shops to buy some some chocolate now but um alfred i honestly um and i i i'm always i'm always honest with my guests because i always try and get people on that i genuinely like the what they're doing and i'm just i'm it's almost selfish there's lots of people listening to this but this is all for me like, i just I enjoy hearing about what, what you're doing and, and how you're going about doing it. So when I say that, I um, you know, thanks for, for joining. I'm, I'm very genuine in that. I appreciate that you're a busy guy and, uh, and I appreciate you coming on and chatting to me for what's nearly an hour now. So um, yeah, I, I'm very thankful. And hopefully lots of people that are listening to this, go up and join the mastermind because uh, Alfred's only 
scratch the tip of the iceberg of what uh, of what he's going to be sharing on there on this episode. So thanks for joining me uh, again, Alfred. Really appreciate it, mate. No, I appreciate having me on. It's been incredible. I hope a lot of people have just, there's a lot of gems in this for sure. I've given it quite away, a lot away. So you have. Back, you keep, you might say you're giving away too much, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, listen to it a few times and just, yeah, soak it all up, write it down and more importantly, implement it because without that, Marshall will bother listening to the podcast. So great way to finish up. Don't just listen, get on and start doing it as well. Awesome. Yeah. Alfred, have a wicked uh, week and I'll catch up with you soon, buddy. You too, mate. Take care. So there we have it. The end of another awesome Game of Loans podcast episode. But let me ask you a quick question. Did you enjoy the episode? If so, I would be so, so, so grateful if you could hop on your platform of choice and give me a five-star rating and even leave a little review. It just helps me get this podcast out to more and more people. And look, if you enjoyed it, maybe they, they will too. One other little favor is if you like not just listening, but viewing your content, head over to my YouTube channel. The link is in the show notes, but if you want to hop over there straight away, you can just search my name, Sam Norris, the Property Investors Broker, and you will find the channel. Hope to see you over there soon. Cheers.